why spiritual life at all? Um, briefly, people all over the world throughout history for thousands of years have noticed wise people, intelligent people, and practically in all cultures in the world, have noticed that there is something missing if you just look at the surface of life. And uh, for example, ourselves, we, our bodies literally have a surface. <laughs> and so in the modern world especially, which is sort of a, uh, a remarkably decadent age that we live in, uh, people tend to take the body as the self. So that people are obsessed like, you know, I am my body, I'm a female or a male, or I belong to this or that race or this or that ethnicity or nationality. I'm, you know, this many years old, I'm, you know, big or small or medium or whatever I am. There's a problem there. The problem is that we have very strong evidence that in fact, we are not our bodies. I mean, we certainly are within our bodies, but I mean, for thousands of years, people have realized that there's the outside, the body, which of course we take care of. We don't hate our bodies. We don't punish our bodies. We're not weird. But uh, there's very strong evidence that we are not the body. The whole notion of going within, of going within, of trying to find yourself within, and in the Bhagavad Gita, which is our sort of our main beginning text, um, Krishna gives a simple example. He spoke to Gita many thousands of years ago that all of us have experience of being children and growing up. And it's actually a fact scientifically that our bodies are constantly changing. For example, we replace our skin about every two weeks. And obviously the hair grows and most people at some point in their lives cut the hair in some way. And so obviously the, um, the hair is different, the skin is different. You find this also in Buddhism actually. If you look at the second sermon of the Buddha, of course he talks about this, that the body or even the material mind are not the eternal self. So the body that we have now, if we want to do like the mirror, mirror on the wall routine, the body we have now is not the body we had several years ago. It's actually a different body. And that body is not the same body that we had several years before that. So despite these changes of body, we are literally at every moment reincarnating. Carne, as you know in Latin, means flesh, like that grows food, chili con carne. So, um, so, so carne in Spanish means flesh or Portuguese. And uh, so we are literally reincarnating at every moment. I always like to quote the great um, ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who actually was the, roughly a contemporary of Buddha. And the idea that everything is temporary in this world was an idea that was going around the world. <clears throat> there was a, another contemporary Buddha was um, 
Jenna, uh, who was the founder of Jainism, of course. And if you look in Europe, uh, if you look in India and other places, there, there was a ideas that were going around the world, like the idea that everything here is temporary. And that, of course, is the basis of Buddhist, the notion of emptiness or void, the shunyata. And it's based on the idea that you cannot point to a material object that is really a single stable object because everything material is in flux. By the way, I should point out, Buddha never denied an eternal soul. He just didn't talk about it. In fact, that was uh, when his actual disciples, ones that lived with him, pushed him to talk more about metaphysics, like the nature of the soul or the not a soul. He gave the example that if you've been shot with an arrow, first just get the arrow out and then worry about you know, how you got shot. And so, but it's very well known, and I'm giving you now mainstream scholarly studies of Buddhism. This is not like some esoteric take on Buddhism. It's very well known that um, Buddha simply would not talk about metaphysics. Metaphysics literally in Greek means that which is beyond the physical. Like we have, you know, the material science of physics. And then if you want to know what is beyond the physical in terms of some kind of soul or consciousness, that is metaphysics, which Buddha basically didn't want to talk about. So Buddha himself did not teach that there's no soul. And in his second sermon, which has been somewhat imaginatively, imaginatively titled for millennia, the sermon on the non-existence of the soul, he actually doesn't say that. Uh, you can check this yourself. Just Google Buddha's second sermon and read it yourself. So, um, so Heraclitus, getting back to our friend Heraclitus, who obviously did not start a movement as big as Buddhism because no one has heard of Heraclitism. Buddhism is much more famous. But still, Heraclitus did say, and this is very similar to what Buddha was saying, that he said you can't step in the same river twice because the second time it's a different river. So I say, sort of using that the spirit of his analogy, that you cannot breathe in the same body twice because your second breath happens in a body which is in some ways different because the body's constantly changing. So the body's constantly changing after several years, so many years, seven years, whatever the number is. Uh, it's a, it actually, you have a complete reincarnation. So if you divide your age by seven, uh, that's how many times you're fully reincarnated in this life. So it's not really an issue of, is there reincarnation? We've already done it many times. The real issue is, does it continue after death? So Krishna says, yes, it does. And even if you look at the way we talk, we say, I was a child, I was an adolescent. Uh, so you admit, we all, we all admit that, you know, it was us. I was the child. When I was a little child, you know, I, I lived in a certain neighborhood in Los Angeles, or I went to a certain school, and you have your story. And yet, the body we had then is gone. Your, your, your little child body didn't just stretch into your adult body. And as you get older, your adult body doesn't just kind of sag from what it was. It's, 
I mean, it's actually a new body. It's actually a new body. And so obviously we are not the body and, and we are something else, the consciousness within the body. And wise people all over the world, doesn't matter Asia or you know, Europe or the Americas. I mean, wise people figured that out and they've been figuring that out for thousands of years. So the idea that we're not this body is something which forms part of, I would say, practically most wisdom traditions in human history. And so let's just go with that and say, yeah, we're not the body, then what are we? And the obvious question is, what are we doing in the body? And so um, if I can respond to Buddha, that story, there, you know, just like there are lots of scholarly issues as far as the historical Jesus, to what extent do we have reliable historical information about Jesus in the New Testament? To what extent is it, has it been, you know, is it information that was censored, that was exaggerated, that was altered? That's been an issue for centuries in, in, you know, in terms of studies of early Christianity. And in the, um, in the case of Buddha, it's also a problem because the first sort of biography of Buddha, where someone actually sat down and wrote a real biography, was written about 500 years after he lived. So there are also issues regarding, you know, the historical Buddha. But still, putting that aside for the moment, um, I think it's obvious he did preach that the world is temporary. and. But, but then replying to what he said, if, if you're shot with an arrow, and I, of course, you know, God forbid, I hope none of you ever are ever shot with an arrow, but if someone is shot with an arrow, then um, he said, just get the arrow out and then worry about who shot you. But frankly, uh, I think at this point, if someone is at all serious about spiritual life in any way, the arrow is kind of out, and we really do need to think about how we got shot, because you may get shot again. And so I think that analogy is nice, maybe like immediately, oh my God, get the arrow out, like immediately, but not too long after that, you better figure out who shot you, and why they did it, and how you can avoid getting shot again. So that is an important issue, actually. And... Um, and so what are we doing here? Why, if we are, what Krishna teaches in the Gita is that we have always existed. There, there are actually philosophically different concepts of eternal. So for example, there's a notion that in the past we didn't exist, then we were born, and now we will always exist because we're souls and we'll go to heaven or to hell. And so the, um, how should I put it? The Indo-European civilization, the only two civilizations that came up with original systematic philosophical traditions, um, philosophical cultures have a much, have a more complete notion of eternal. In other words, if you are actually eternal, it doesn't simply mean that you're created at a certain time from nothing, which actually the Old Testament doesn't necessarily say. But it, it was just interpreted that way. But it's, it's not just that you were created from nothing and now, You'll live forever, but if you are really a spiritual being and you actually exist beyond material time, then, as Krishna states in the Gita, uh, you have always existed. 
That's actually what Krishna says in the Gita, Natvevam Jatu Nasam, it's a Sanskrit, that never did you not exist. Actually, Krishna says, never did I not exist, nor you, nor all these other people here. So, so consider that notion that you have always existed. And, and there's a few ways to get at that idea. Uh, one is that if you are truly a spiritual being, if you are some kind of conscious soul, then you're not matter. You're not like earth or water, fire, air. <clears throat> you're not aluminum or, you know, you're not matter. And therefore, you don't have the characteristics of matter. The nature of material objects, as Buddha pointed out, and as Heraclitus pointed out, and as a lot of people have pointed out, is that every material object begins at a certain point and then ends, like your body or like a planet. Every material object has a shelf life, you know, even if it's the whole universe itself. There's a cosmic shelf life. And so if you are really a spiritual being, then you don't have the qualities of matter. You're a different kind of thing the kind of thing that doesn't begin to exist and doesn't stop existing. Another point is that in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna, the speaker, says that actually you are part of me. The notion that we are part of God. Uh, so this is not a dualism. Dualism is a kind of philosophy in which God is one thing and we're something else and there's a huge difference and that's just the way it is. Uh, whereas, and then of course you have monism, which says, you know, the whole idea that there is a God or individual soul's illusion, there's just one consciousness. Uh, the first notion, dualism, is not really encouraging because it's not a great way to start a relationship. Like if you meet someone, you're kind of interested in that person and they say that, you know, we are very different and we'll always be very different. Okay, that's sort of like a pretty crude way to say, no, I don't want to go out with you. No, I don't want to be your intimate friend. And so, so just dualism is, it's not really promising if we're looking for a spiritual loving relationship with the origin of our existence. And then of course, the, the monism that, you know, individuality is an illusion has a lot of serious philosophical problems. The first problem is if all variety is illusion, all individuality is illusion, where the heck did the world come from? Because there are two possibilities. God created the world. God didn't create the world. If God didn't create the world, then there obviously everything is not one because there's God and there's the world. So if God didn't create the world, it would be absurd to say that it's all one. If God did create the world, then the obvious question is, well, why did he do that? Because if everything is illusion except the divine, then why create illusion? If the world is somehow illusion, why create illusion? And if God is impersonal, if there's not a personal God, then God or it or the divine has no desires because only people have desires. And so that means that God created the world without wanting or intending to do it. So it's just like, was it some kind of 
inexplicable divine burp or something. So, so the idea, so the idea that it's all one, and a third problem with that idea, which again, philosophically, it's really a non-starter. Another problem with it is that um, it calls upon us in the name of our own enlightenment to essentially uh, commit some type of spiritual suicide. And suicide is not healthy, you know, whether it's physical or metaphysical, it's just not, suicide is not the way to go. And so if you are not really a person, if you're not really a unique individual person and you have to give up that idea, uh, I'm not going to sign up for that because I'm really happy to be a person. I've, I had really nice parents, I had a nice family, I'm happy now. I really like being free. I really like making my own decisions. I like having the freedom to choose relationships. I like having the freedom to express myself artistically. You know, I write, I, I, I write books and I also play classical music on the keyboard on good days. And so, so I, I mean, I think it's just fantastic being a free individual person and the idea of giving up my individuality, giving up my freedom, giving up my creativity, giving up all my relationships and just merging into some type of corporate radiance, uh, I think I'll pass. I mean, spending all eternity radiating divinely is, I mean, I think I would die of boredom. I think I would almost rather be locked in a room and forced to listen to public radio fundraising drives. And that's like, for me, the highest form of torture. It's like, I mean, I can't think of anything more excruciating than having to listen to public radio fundraising drives. But anyway, so we know now, we know now that we are free, conscious individuals. And so don't kill yourself in the name of meditation or something. It's really like, like what are you doing? So therefore, and if we say, someone may say there's no God, the problem with saying there's no God is that you're asserting something that you can never verify. If I assert, or if let's say I'm hoping, or I suspect that there's a God, I can go out and try to verify that. Because let's say hypothetically, if there is a God, and if God is not a creep and actually wants me to know him or her or them or whatever, then uh, I can know God. Obviously, if God is God, God has the power to reveal God to us. And so therefore, if there is a God, and I believe there's a God or I'm trying to verify it, then it's something which, if true, can in fact logically be verified. Whereas if I say there's no God, agnosticism just means I don't know. So that's kind of, I think, philosophically respectable agnosticism. But if someone actually is an atheist and says there's no God, which, by the way, Buddha never said, um, it's really a philosophical absurdity. Because if there's no God, no one knows everything. And if no one knows everything, no one knows that there's a God. And so if someone says there's no God, they're affirming something which they can never verify. Because if there's no God, then all of us are just kind of trapped in this universe for a few years. And if you think of all the things that are knowable, 
and what percentage of all knowable things we actually know. We probably know a, I mean, my God, you'd have to like almost have like 10 miles of zeros to the right of the decimal point before you actually put a number up if we were trying to like what percentage of all knowable things we know i mean it's almost like it's an infinitesimal amount infinitely small we know an infinitely or just ridiculously tiny percentage of all that is knowable and so for someone in that position to say i know there's no god is just obviously we're not dealing with a rational human being Because how could you know that when you don't know almost everything? Whereas if there is a God, then it can be verified if God is not a creep who hides from us, you know, for eternally. So, and so then if you accept that, I mean, Pascal, Pascal, Blaise Pascal was a French, uh, which, you know, not necessarily a problem, but he, um, he lived in the 1600s. He was one of the greatest philosophers and mathematicians and scientists of his century. So he was very bright, very high SAT scores. And he put forward this proposition, which is called Pascal's Wager, which he said there are four logical possibilities. Number one, you believe in God and there is no God. I mean, any order you can say these in. Number two, you believe in God and there is a God. Number three, you don't believe in God and there's no God. Number four, you don't believe in God and there is a God. I mean, those are the only four possibilities. And so he said, if you don't believe in God and there's no God, in other words, you actually got it right. First of all, you'll never really know you got it right, but let's say you did get it right. Uh, there's actually not much benefit because you'll never know if you were right. And secondly, social science, quite a large growing body of social science shows that there are certain benefits to believing in God, whether or not there is a God. It actually is psychologically very healthy. People recover more quickly from diseases, uh, including emotional problems. It just, it just, it's actually beneficial. The belief is beneficial, whether or not the belief corresponds to the real fact in the universe. And so, so if you believe, if you don't believe in God, there's no God, on a human level, you don't really win anything. There's no prize for that. If you don't believe in God and there is a God, you're like the loser of the week. There's a, um, in Los Angeles, where I grew up, there's a La Cienega Boulevard north of Wilshire. Uh, it's called Restaurant Row, or it used to be. I have no idea if they still call it that. But when I was growing up, it was called Restaurant Row. And uh, there was one famous restaurant, the name of which I forgot, they had a signboard because a lot of traffic goes by in La Cienega, and it says loser of the week. And if it's some politician or, you know, whoever it might be, someone in the news it was the loser of the week. And so if you don't believe in God and there is a God, I mean, it's not that you'll go to hell for not believing in God. We're not primitive like that. But if, but if there is a God and you don't believe it, you really, you lost a lot. I mean, you lost the best possible outcome for your life. Now, if there is a God and you don't believe in God, no, if there is a God, let's say if, if there, let's say you believe in God, you believe in God, but there's no God, you've actually got it wrong. 
you're very nice and religious, you just got it wrong. In that case, you still, according to social science, not theology, you will still probably have a, a much better life. Emotionally, and even frankly, economically, strangely enough. Because, <laughs> because, because people who are economically more stable, uh, their marriages, not always, but tend to be more stable. And we know there's massive social science that shows that when a couple stays together, there are financial benefits. Because for one thing, they share the rent or the mortgage. And then, so, so if you believe in God and there's no God, you still will probably have a better life. If you believe in God and there is a God, then you, so to speak, won the existential lottery. And so therefore, Pascal said, if you don't know, and you know, say you're an agnostic, you just don't know, then it's actually, hey, it's actually in your rational self-interest to try to find God. You know, you may find God, you may not find God, but it's actually in your rational self-interest. And so if someone accepts that, if someone accepts that, then, um, then of course, there's another false notion. It's very common in our culture to say, there are so many religions and they all have different ideas of God and they all claim that the only truth and they all contradict each other and they all cancel each other out. Therefore, I'm going to uh, click on unaligned or something. Or, or the whole idea of religion is kind of silly because you just have all these religions, each making exclusive claims, contradicting each other, etc. People that say that, uh, one thing they have in common is that uh, they have the honor of never having studied the history of religions. Because people that actually study the history of religions and don't just go around throwing out sort of irrational cliches, people that actually study the history of religions know that the truth is exactly the opposite. For one thing, if you study world religions, I mean, dozens of them, or however many you want, the ones that have actually had some impact, I mean, someone may declare that actually the universe was created by the great pumpkin who sits on the moon, and I mean, but you probably won't get many followers. So if you look at the religions that have had some traction, if you look at world religions, all over the world, doesn't matter where, that have had some traction, in other words, Somehow they resonated, they connected, you know, they had ideas which a lot of people felt made sense. Or they had some kind of practice which sustained communities. So unless you have ideas and practices that, just from a sociological perspective, sustain individuals and communities, you don't become an important religion in the world. You don't grow, you know, you kind of get thrown in the, you know, the wastebasket of history. So the, the, fact that, the fact that a religion has had some success, has survived, doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't mean necessarily that the doctrine is true. It does mean that it has ideas and practices which a significant number of people found, you know, work for them. And so therefore, if a religion has proven in time that it didn't work for a significant number of people, and if we assume as a sort of a logical, well, as an assumption that if there is a God or something like a God, he would give some, he would, you know, give us 
a religion or a path which is not completely dysfunctional for human beings. Because if you're a god, like why give people a path which just doesn't work for most people? I mean, what are you trying to do? So assuming God is not a sociopath or just, you know, hiding, then, then, so if you look at the religions that actually are contenders, you could say, if you look at world religions that actually have some traction, that, that actually appeal to significant numbers of people at different times and places, then what you find is that there actually are very few basic religious ideas. And the notion that there's so many religions and they're all different is actually false. And could only come from someone that hasn't seriously studied world religions. I mean, to give one example of someone who was not strictly academic, but very bright and studied a lot was Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, who sort of revolutionized the study of mythology. And uh, he, Joseph Campbell, became prominent by showing that there are so many things in common. There are so many universals in successful religions. And so there really aren't that many options. Like, for example, you could be a, an animist, which means that you just kind of believe it's sort of an incoherent, non-structured worldview in which there are different kinds of spirits and magical beings and forests and rivers and... I don't know, apple trees or whatever. And if you look at animism, actually study it, their ontology, what you find is animism, animistic worldviews around the world, they're not philosophical, they're not even really coherent, they're kind of just all over the place. And you don't find them in developed civilizations. If you look at the sort of the worldviews, religious worldviews you find in more developed civilizations, uh, there's polytheism. Polytheism, which you find all over the world, like, you know, there, there's Greek polytheism, there's Roman, there's ancient Japanese, Chinese polytheism, Scandinavian polytheism, Polynesian, you know, it's all over the world. But polytheism, it, practically invariably, uh, tends to be pre-philosophical. In other words, there's just sort of a, the way things are, that there's a god of rain or a goddess of rain. So if you want your crops watered, if you want to eat next season, you you know better go do the ritual. And but like, where does everything come from? It's interesting because um, when you study polytheisms, what you find is that almost inevitably they don't attribute to the gods and goddesses the pantheon, you know, the collection of gods and goddesses they don't attribute to these celestial beings ultimate origins. Usually, or almost always, there's a source of the gods and goddesses. So if you're asking the simple question, where does it all come from? Polytheism is not really gonna give you a very good answer. It's not gonna be the gods and goddesses. It's gonna be some kind of natural forces, like there was the atmosphere and there was the waters, the cosmic waters, and they met and they procreated, and so you're it's not a philosophical explanation. It's not scientific. It's not even, it's not theological. It's just kind of, so, so if you look at, um, say the most famous, probably the most famous philosophical work in Western history, which is Plato's Republic, Plato talks, Plato just says polytheism is just not going to do it. I mean, if you're an intelligent human being and you really want to figure out where it all comes from, 
Homer, because, you know, for them it was Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's just not going to float your boat. It's not going to, it's not going to do it for you. Because Homer is just kind of, the gods and goddesses are kind of like these uh, out of control adolescents and nothing is rational. People don't, there's no cosmic system of justice. There's no real laws. It's just kind of, you know, it's almost like a, an out of control fraternity party or something. And so what you find is, what you find is throughout history is that when civilizations, at least a certain group in a civilization, began to really get serious about philosophy, science, rational life, uh, they discarded polytheism. It's just not, it's just not going to take us to, to real, systematic, rational, just demonstrable higher knowledge. And so then once you get past polytheism, uh, you know, there's different ways you can go. There's pantheism. Pan in Greek means everything or all. So pantheism means like, like Spinoza in the West, like the whole universe is God. I think that's really also, in, you know, no offense to Spinoza or his, uh, whatever, his fellow pantheist, but I don't think it really explains anything because if you say the universe is God, what do you really mean? I mean, do you mean like an aluminum can opener is God or some asteroid or Jupiter or, you know, my, I don't know, my left kidney? I mean, I mean, what is God? Because hopefully God is conscious because if God is unconscious, that's really not promising. And, you know, people, there, there's a common way to talk nowadays, which kind of sounds good, but when you examine it, it's like, what does that mean? Like, the universe is helping me. What does it actually mean? I mean, do you mean, I don't know, the Indian Ocean or some distant galaxy? And so if the universe is helping you, people don't help other people. If they're, I mean, unconscious, when you're unconscious, you don't help anyone except maybe by breathing out carbon dioxide for trees or something. But I mean, I mean, when you, the idea of consciously helping someone means you're conscious. So if you say the universe is helping you, do you mean that within the universe, there is a consciousness? That the, the whole universe is someone's body. It's just like you have a physical body and you are the consciousness inside the body. So if you say, and we know the universe is physical, and of course it's multidimensional, it's all, all kinds of things going on in the universe that, you know, beyond modern empirical science, but still, basically if we call the universe this very large material object, then you say the universe is helping you, if only conscious things can help or intend to help other people, who is the consciousness of the universe? It's just like, for example, you have a body, you have a physical body, and you are the consciousness inside that body, but you're someone. You're not just sort of the category consciousness or the idea of consciousness. You're a real person. You're somebody. So if you say the universe is, hel is helping you, that means there must be a consciousness in the universe, and that consciousness has to be someone. So who is it? Who is the lucky consciousness it gets to be the consciousness of the universe people don't think about that well because people don't think so why think about that if you, you don't think in general i mean no one has time there you know someone just tweeted me 10 seconds ago or texted me and 
I don't have time to think about the universe. So, so my point is pantheism, I think ultimately it sounds nice, you know, the universe is God, but what does it even mean? Under scrutiny, I think it kind of disintegrates as a serious idea. And if you say that it's all one, well, actually it's not. For example, there are different colors. If you only, if, if everything in the universe was exactly the same hue or shape, exactly the same color, everything in the universe, or if we were made in such a way physiologically that we could only, we perceived everything as being exactly the same color, you would, we would not even have the idea of color. You wouldn't even understand the concept of color. You can only understand the concept of color when there's at least two. You can only understand the concept of harmony or, or, or melody in music if there's more than one note. What if every sound in the universe was exactly the same note, the same pitch? You would have no concept of melody or harmony. And so frankly, I like the idea of being in a universe where there are different colors, where there are di different melodies and different harmonies, different people. I think variety is a really nice thing. And I think if everything was exactly the same, we would experience infinite boredom and infinite stupidity because you couldn't even understand the idea of person if everyone was the same. I mean, basically you wouldn't understand anything about anything. Yes? You're breaking up. Oh, breaking up is hard to do. Paul Anka, that was a big hit back in the... Uh... Is your connection okay? Yeah, I should be. Sorry. So, can you can you hear now? Yeah. Right now it is, but it was kind of one in and out. Okay, so all okay. So, if everything was one. It, as I, it doesn't explain anything. It doesn't explain why the universe exists. It doesn't explain why we are individual persons, why there are different colors, different sounds, melodies, harmonies, why, I mean, it, it doesn't explain anything. So if a philosophy of life is supposed to explain life, saying it's all one basically explains nothing. And so what people have tended to believe or accept, and this is all around the world, in all world religions, is that ultimately we have a source. We come from somewhere and that source is personal, even in Buddhism. If you look at the Buddhism that became a world religion, one hand clapping did not become a world religion. Uh, what became a world religion is a Buddhism that has saviors, bodhisattvas, for example, about 85% of living Buddhists, at least at the time I taught this at the University of Florida, but 85% of living Buddhists are Mahayana Buddhists. Who, they have personal saviors and compassion and you pray. If you look at the Lotus Sutra, which is probably like the big winner in terms of Buddhist books, you pray, you need a savior. And so old fashioned religion, you know, sorry, where there is some type of personal savior and some kind of heaven or paradise 
is actually what made every world religion a world religion. And there's no exception to that. There's no world religion that became a world religion by teaching one hand clapping or pantheism or it's all one. Why? Because it doesn't work for human beings. At least it only works for human beings in very, very tiny numbers. And so you can say, well, that doesn't prove anything. Well, but if we are not absolutely deluded, if we are not, if we, in other words, we must be to some extent in touch with our own souls. After all, all of us, despite our problems, there's goodness in all of us. All of us are capable of love. All of us are capable of being loved. All of us sometimes do good things for the right reasons. And that means we are, most people in the world are to some extent in touch with their own souls. And that being the case, the fact that almost everyone in the world. They say that breaking up is hard to do. Okay, so. Okay. First time, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're the first timers. Sorry about all the technical problems. No, no, no. I'm used to it. I do Skype classes, and breaking up is kind of normal. So, um, so that's it. I mean, if we are not, because if we're so radically an illusion that what most human beings who ever lived everywhere in the world at all times in history, if what most human beings believe, believe tells us nothing about reality, that would lead to a very radical skepticism where human beings are simply radically incapable of understanding reality. And if that's true, then you could just doubt everything and basically go crazy and get money from the government. We can't hear you right now. Oh. Oh, okay. How about now? Oh. Yes. I can hear you. I'll tell you what, why don't I why don't I hang up and call you right back? Now you can hear me? Yes. Okay. So anyway, that's kind of what I had to say. So getting back to Krishna West, uh, basically in India, as I explained in my course, India is, I think is the best place in the world to study world religions for the simple reason that number one, there have always been, there's always been a lot of people in India. Can you hear now? Hold on a second. We need to disconnect a second. Okay. We cannot continue because you're breaking up so much. Okay. So we're going to try to disconnect and reconnect again. Is that what we're going to try? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to hang up and then we're going to call you again. Okay. I won't take it personally. Mas se eu botar o cabo direto, que aí não tem problema de internet. Muito bem. Skype, aham. Uh -huh.
So for those on Ustream, uh, they hung up because they're having connection problems. They're going to call me back. Hopefully we'll get a better connection. You were interested in donating to Krishna West, Austin, Texas. Please see Lilananda. She will happily accept your large and generous donations. And she will be outraged if you try to give a smaller amount of money. Just kidding. That's a joke. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. So basically what I was saying is that um, throughout history, can you hear? Okay, can you hear me now? Okay. I mean, just, just to wrap it up, because uh, you, you know, I don't want to try your patience, but Basically, most people, most human beings who ever lived all over the world at all times believe there is some kind of personal divine force that we have to contend with or deal with or love or do something with in the universe. And so you either have to say, well, okay, that doesn't prove anything, but you can't say it's irrelevant because if that's irrelevant, then you are forced into a very extreme radical skepticism about the ability of human beings to know. And, and if you adopt that radical skepticism, basically you can't really know anything or you can't really say you, you, you can prove anything. And it, it, it's kind of a philosophical dead end. If you begin your philosophical search by saying that human beings are radically delusional, that includes you, and so why even bother? And actually, I, I, I think we are not radically delusional. I think we have a lot of good instincts. We have a lot of good, good intuitions. And we should take very seriously that the overwhelming majority of people that ever lived on Earth believe there's some kind of personal divine force in the universe. I think we should take that fantastically widespread evidence seriously. We should actually take that seriously. And philosophically, ultimately, You'll find, I think, that a personal, spiritual explanation makes most sense philosophically, if you work out all the details. Last point. India, as I said, I think is the best place in the world to study world religion because it has the best river system in the world. Just Google, you know, rivers of India, you'll see. has the best natural irrigation system in the world. It has fertile land, and therefore it's always supported a large population. That's one thing. So there's always a lot of people. Number two, India always had freedom. This, when it wasn't under foreign rule, like Muslim rule, the Mughals or whatever. But whenever India operated under its own culture, there was freedom of religion, freedom of speech, even political freedom. You could actually, in ancient India, we know from ancient texts, like Mahabharata, you could just go into the middle of the town and criticized the king, and there was, that was not against the law. So they had political, they had freedom of speech, they had religious freedom, and they were always inclined towards spirituality or religion in some way. So you have a lot of people who are inclined toward religion, and they have the freedom to pursue their interests. They have the freedom to just go wherever they want to go. 
then you get what you do get the largest variety of human religion in the world. And so that's why India is so interesting because they had the freedom and there was a significant number of people and they were interested in these things. They invented yoga and all meditation, all the spirituality. And so, and if you look at the history of India, what you find <laughs> in this open marketplace of ideas to use a crass, you know, modern metaphor, open marketplace of ideas, to you to look in this open marketplace with freedom, the big winner, historically over thousands of years, the big winner that convinced and attracted and inspired most people was Krishna consciousness. What we're presenting. So, you know, you're not guinea pigs. We are presenting to you something which has demonstrated for thousands of years that it has the power to inspire and enlighten human beings. There's an incredible body of philosophical knowledge. There are powerful spiritual practices. And Krishna West is simply the attempt to take this great tradition and make it user-friendly for Western people so you don't have to jump through ethnic hoops. You don't have to do things which are unnatural for you in a natural way within your own life. You can develop this powerful spiritual knowledge and have a great life and discover real love. Not only with God, but in your human relationship. So that's Krishna West. But wait, call today and we will send you at no extra cost. Anyway, so that's... <laughs> so that's Krishna West. So uh, any questions? I have one comment. Um, there's a lot of really good points and I felt very aligned with most of what you said. It really resonated with me. But there was one thing I um, disagree with, or I don't think I disagree, but to clarify, uh, I don't think the more powerful a religion is or the longer it has lasted necessarily makes it a healthy thing because uh, it doesn't take into account people who were forced to convert. Okay, very uh, good point. That that's that's a very that's a very good point, and I completely agree with you. And no. so and so yeah, I I'm glad you brought that up because I should have mentioned that. So uh, I'm going to add that next time I go over this. No, then I completely agree with you. In fact, I've made that point myself. I just forgot to say it this time. But yeah, right, that's why we're aligned. I just wanted to clarify it. And yeah. also the fact that you know there could have been religions or not even just religions ways of life like the Native Americans which we just totally demolished and they had all this value that we lost and now we're seeking as we are destroying the planet. And, oh yeah. You know, a no, a no, absolutely. For, so regarding your first point, yes, it, it's it's a very important, um, how should I put qualifier, but I'm glad you brought it up, that we're, we really should be talking about religions that are not brutally imposed upon people. And actually, it's interesting because if you look at cases historically where religions were forced on people, violently forced on people, what you find is that people find all kinds of strategies to, yeah, to work around it. For example, why did you have so many secret societies in medieval and early Renaissance Europe, whether it's the Knights Templar or this, this secret group, you know, the Masons, because, you know, it, it's like water. When water is blocked, it just finds a way to, to you know, break through it. You know, water will always find a way to break through. And so 
so that's so people found a way to get around it and 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 so yeah so we should talk about and that was a good point you brought up we should talk about religions which have survived and flourished not by violent coercion but because people really chose it. yeah yeah we should talk about religions we should talk about religions that people chose and, and were not violently forced to accept so yeah i completely agree with you and, and actually what you find though is that the violence doesn't it's not sustainable yeah it's not sustainable and eventually history rejects it because human the human need for freedom ultimately overcomes it in some way or other and then what was your other point was um oh it's kind of related it's like on one hand you know sometimes very strong Strong religions are actually destructive, and then they're not sustainable. Yes, exactly, um, exactly. Or, and then the, the the related point is in the process, sometimes real harm is done in demolishing a more enlightened people or a more enlightened way of being, um, such as like what has happened to the Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. The um, yeah. The the but how should I put it? If you look at the Native American. Yeah. It, so if you look at the Native Americans, for example, and the, and also one thing, if you really study Native Americans, there was a huge variety. Yeah. It's just like, for example, we have wisdom traditions in our culture, but it's not like everyone in America is into the wisdom tradition. And so the same thing, if you actually study Native American history to the extent that we can reliably recover it, um, they had wars, they had genocide, they had all kinds of things going on. And so, but, but they did have wisdom. They did have real wisdom. And, and especially in pre-industrial societies, or I would just say non-industrial, because pre-industrial sounds like that's the way to go. But if you look at non-industrial societies, they have wisdom traditions and they tend to be less hypocritical. Like for example, they can value nature. They can appreciate nature and they actually have a lifestyle which, which is consistent with that. So they're less hypocritical in that sense, I think. In, in their, and also, I would say, though, that despite the violence and, and, and all the evil done to Native Americans, that a lot of their ideas, because they are true, have persisted. For example, the whole environmental movement, this whole international movement to rethink our relationship with nature, I think is something which is kind of like a modern way of getting back to some of that indigenous wisdom. And, 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 and so in that sense, the really great ideas do persist because they're true. They come back. Yeah. So, but thank you for those points. So anything else? Uh, if not, um... What is, what is it? What is it? you Fahim. 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 student of Nestle Vesola. I've done uh, Capoeira, and he, uh, many times he mentioned um, his way and his spiritual journey and yourself, and it's, it's great to be here. I came a little late, so I'm just listening and finding out what it's, you know, about where we're going, basically. And then uh, um, I, I probably have questions um, at the end, but it's great to be around. Yeah, actually, we have a uh, Rama. You have that book, right? Gita Guide. 
Yeah, so th there are some books. Uh, you know, if you could read a little bit, and then if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Absolutely. Because I tried to present the Gita in a way that's systematic. It's, it's meant for non-believers. It's meant for just people. And it doesn't assume that you believe or know this or that. It just tries to explain everything. So if you could take a look at that, and then if you have any questions, I'd be happy to uh, talk to you about it. Soon to be a major motion picture. We're waiting for next summer's blockbuster season. <laughs> so anyway, uh, thank you all very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you so much. And, and thank you all that are. Oh yeah. Want to say goodbye to everybody? Right. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so uh, Ate Logo. See you soon. Well, that was kind of Phil. Oh, I forgot. We're still on. Um, we're still on Ustream. So thank you for. Uh,